So listen, yeah, my name's Josh. Uh, I'm also on staff here. Um, I look after the children's and youth work here, and uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you tonight. You know, Titus, the book we've been looking at over the last two weeks, is, is challenging in places. It's something that I think should shape us, and I think can shape us, but we really need to engage with it, and really need to decide to get what we can out of it. And you know, actually, where we were going in worship just earlier, and actually saying, you know, he loves us, and that he's... He's got a plan for us. He's got his best for us. Actually, it's a really good foundation to come up this evening in, knowing that we're loved, knowing that we're chosen by him. Uh, Because as we look at Titus 3, we're going to be encouraged to go out into our world and make um, a difference. I've mentioned Titus a couple of times now. Titus has three chapters. I'm doing chapter three. So for those of you who are here for the last two weeks, you will have heard Jago and Rory speak on Titus 1 and Titus 2. But don't worry if you missed it. I'm going to give you a really quick summary to kind of get us from where we were to where we are now. So Titus 1. Um, Jago helped us look at the roles and the expectations that we can have of the leaders in the church. He unpacked how the ultimate agent of transformation is the local church and that we should look to have an internal knowledge of the gospel and believe for transformation in our own lives through Jesus. He spoke uh, about how internal godliness leads to external godliness. And that linked well to last week when Rory encouraged us that living a godly life is for every single one of us, that by God's grace we can truly be transformed in every area of our lives. He reminded us it's not something we can assume, but something that we have to actively work at. And all through this letter, there's a theme of Paul calling the Christians in Crete to stand out, to let the fact that they know Jesus make them different to the people around them. And there's no different today. That's where we're going to go, to say that actually when we know the gospel, we're shaped by the gospel and we stand out for the gospel, we can transform what we learned on week one, our church, week two, our lives, and today, our world. But before we do that, do you want to go to the end of your pews and get your little pieces of paper that have Titus 3 on? And I'm just going to read that before we carry on. So this is Titus 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, and to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to Nicobocca glory because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that you have everything that they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. 
everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the face. Faith? That's an important different one. Grace be with you. Oh, God, I thank you that whether we say face or faith, whether we know how to say the difficult names or not, you love us and that you want us to learn from your word. And I pray today as we open up Titus 3 that you'll be speaking to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've heard people say, when are we going to stop talking about the gospel and get on to the real stuff? When are we going to stop talking about what we're supposed to learn at the beginning and really start being discipled? I want to unpack today, I think, how actually I think that's wrong. I actually, I think that's not a good way to look at the gospel, that actually a sign of maturity is understanding the gospel and letting it shape every area of your life. That actually, if we are doing that, then it is a lifelong thing and not a light switch moment. So actually, all through this, like I've said, Paul is wanting the people of Crete to do exactly this, to understand that the gospel that they have is amazing and that should change and transform everything. So um, this last week, uh, many of you will know the history of this church. You'll know that we have a very inspiring past, that William Wilberforce and a group called the Clapham Sect worshipped here. And actually, they were part of the abolition of the slave trade, and they saw some amazing things in transforming the world. And, and this week, J.O. got to go to the Houses of Parliament and speak about this at one of the lunchtime services. Slightly less flashy, I got to speak to two junior school classes here in the church about William Wilberforce. But the point is, is that both of us were able to say William Wilberforce loved Jesus, and that's why he did what he did. That he knew the gospel, that he wanted it to shape the way that he lived his life. And that he wanted to stand out for the gospel. And that is what we're looking at today. But just to ground it back here. So I was in a youth work session a few weeks ago here with one of our newer youth workers here. And they were, they were given a session on Ezra talking about um, how important the truth of God's word is. And they were saying, you know, over the last few years, I have known the gospel. And I've started to let it shape my life. And it's starting to change the way that I do life and the way that I make decisions. And as he said that, some of the, I was just in, just in the session for five minutes. So it was perfect for this sermon. Uh, and uh, some of the young people were speaking about how actually over different things that they'd gone to, over some of the groups here, but also some of the festivals they'd been to, that they had seen the gospel in a new way and that they'd started to want to let it change and shape the way that they live their lives. We can see that the gospel changes lives. We can look to the past, we can look to the present, and we can look right here in scripture. And so actually I want us to all be encouraged before we even really go into any of my three excellently labeled points to say that actually we can be encouraged that this is for us and this is for now, that the gospel is alive and real. It can change us if we get to know it. It can shape us if we get to know it, and it can cause us to stand out in a way that changes the world around us. It may feel a little bit daunting to talk in these terms, but let me just remind us as well that this is a process we go to, not a momentary thing where one experience, one super amazing prayer, or something like that won't change it. But what will change it is going on the journey and beginning to be transformed day by day. So we're going to start in the middle of the passage, and we are going to work our way out. So right in the middle of Titus 3, verses 3 to 8, before we go there, we're going to talk about knowing the gospel, okay? And these four verses, five verses, explain that really well. So we're going to know the gospel. That's point one on your sheets if you're taking notes. I'd advise you to take notes. I've heard rumors that it causes you to remember things better, but who knows? Um, verses 3 to 8. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. You know, we read things like this, and when I first read this, I was like, yeah, I get that. That's the gospel. I can see the steps. I can see it intellectually. I can see the process. I can even see the truth. But then I felt convicted that actually was that all it was to me, just an excitement that I kind of get it, that I've seen it before, that I can identify the process in this very well-worded, short account of what the gospel is. Has the amount of times, and I wonder if this is where you are sitting here tonight, the amount of times I've heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has almost made it a little bit dead to me, or at least the magnitude of what it really is isn't something I'm grasping when I'm coming to my daily small life decisions or something I'm grasping when I'm coming to the really big life decisions and things that go on in our lives. I wonder if that's how you're feeling. Because sometimes I think when you hear another, go- another gospel message, you think, great, come on, do something else. And as I looked at Titus 3, uh, and I hope as we go through it together, you'll see that there's so much we can get out of this. So much that is not just for today and for the first time we heard it, but for, to encourage us all the way through our lives as we look to be shaped by the gospel. So how does Titus help us understand it? So Titus 2 verse 14, this is looking back at the passage from last week with Rory, it says that who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. If justice is giving people what they deserve, then we have to look to Jesus and recognize that justice was required. If we even look at verse 3 in our passage today, the one we just read, it talked about us being where we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, all these different things that it says. They're not, they're not good things. And Paul is telling those in Crete, and it's the same for us today, that we were once like this before Jesus took our place, that sin is very real, that sin gets, gets in the way of us knowing God, and God had to be just. It's who he is. He had to deal with sin. And his justice fell on Jesus when he took our place on the cross. And for the verses that we've just read and for so much more, who we, are, we deserve death. Justice had to be done and it was done through Jesus. I'm aware I'm just going through the gospel again, but let's grasp it afresh. Let's look at it new, newly again today. Mercy was needed. If mercy is not giving people what they deserve, if mercy is not giving people what they deserve, then we read in 4 to 6 that, that God's kind, his love appeared, that he saved us not because of what we've done, but because of his mercy, that actually we didn't deserve it, like I say, because of what we've done, but he sends his spirit to stand with us in this as well, free from the power of sin because of God's mercy. Verse 7 reminds us that we're justified by his grace. So finally, I suppose grace is shown. If we define grace as giving people what they don't deserve, we define grace as giving people what they don't deserve, then grace goes beyond just being restored to relationship with God. It gives us a status. It elevates us to a place of purpose, a place where we're called to be transformed and live transformed lives for those around us in our world. Now, the gospel is received, not achieved. It's a really important distinction that we can receive it, we can't achieve it. Because it's not about us, it's about him. Grace was shown, and grace is shown today. But some of us see the gospel and we don't see grace. We see our sin. And I get that, because it's there. We feel guilt and shame and even a lack of worth. 
And before we move on, I just want to quickly address that and say that actually, yes, some of us might feel worthless in a small area or in general. There might be times in our lives where that is the default position of our heads, but also even our hearts. The gospel speaks to the worth that God places on each and every single one of us. I heard a quote that says something like this. (laughs) If we are going to define our worth by how much someone is willing to pay for us, then we need to look at the gospel and redefine our worth. And what that's saying is, is that God decided we were worth his son and the death of his son. So actually, that's what was paid for us, and that's what should define our worth. Remember, the gospel is received, not achieved. We don't deserve it, but we can choose to accept it. Verse 8, I did the very small part of it, says, this is a trustworthy saying. I believe it's talking about the bit just before. And the reason I think this is because in Titus 1, verse 9, Jago looked at this as well. It says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And the trustworthy message and trustworthy saying are the same thing. It's um, this message that was entrusted to leaders, this gospel that was entrusted to the leaders and the teachers is also entrusted to every single one of us. Paul is all about the transformative power of the gospel. And that power is not distilled today. In my interview four years ago, I, I'm the children's and youth minister, okay, that's what I do here in the week and in the morning, you should come, I do dance around on stage in a t-shirt, it's really fun. Um, but four years ago, I was in a, an interview for this job, and I was asked how I would share the gospel with the next generation. I won't go into the mechanics of my answer, but what I do remember saying is that the gospel always has been, is right now, and always will be good enough. It's good news. In fact, it's the best news ever. And so actually how we might explain it could change. When we're in front of different people, it might be helpful to use different analogies or metaphors to help somebody understand the gospel. But at its very core, it is the most amazing news that anyone can ever know. At its core, it's life-changing. I'm aware I just quoted myself. I know that's slightly awkward. I haven't done that before. You guys can give me feedback afterwards. Is that weird? The gospel changes us so that we can change our world. We need to know it, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Um, William Wilberforce said this. It's going to come up on the screen. What infinite love that Christ should die to save such a sinner and how necessary it is. He got it. He knew the gospel, but also he desperately wanted it to shape him. And so should we. So point one is know the gospel. You can go back to your sheets if you're not already. Remember, writing means learning. Know the gospel and point to be shaped by the gospel. So how do we take knowing the gospel to making a difference in transforming our world? We need to be shaped by the gospel. And Titus 3 and Titus 2 as well, if you didn't listen to Rory's sermon last week, I'd encourage you to go online and listen to it. It doesn't stop being relevant when we've already done Titus 3. It's really good stuff. Offers us some do's and don'ts in order to outline being shaped by the gospel to be shaped by Jesus. And being shaped by the gospel means we're saved to do good. In fact, it's the subheading on our reading as well. And I've heard rumors that those guys as well are really good at working out what these things might be about. So sometimes worth looking at those. Verse one of chapter three asks Titus to remind the people. And when he's saying the people, he is talking about everybody who is reading the letter. And this letter would have been read out to the churches. It would have been read out to the churches in Crete and probably beyond that as well. So when it's saying the people, immediately we should look at that in the scripture and we should say, I need to listen to what's about to happen. The bit that's coming after that is important for me. 
So let's have a little bit, of what, a little bit of a look of what that is. Um, so it says to be subject to rulers and authorities. And I think that's in the big and the small. It's not something that the people of Crete were very good at. They weren't very good at obeying the law of the land. And so actually, Paul was like, hey, we should do that to stand out. But it's also something that we can apply today as well. And say the big, so actually obeying the law of the land. Not speeding, paying our taxes, not illegally streaming the World Cup, even if we don't really technically have a TV license, but we really like England, especially when they win. Amen. I nearly did a preach on England's chances to win the World Cup, but I was told that wasn't appropriate. Um, And then maybe in the small as well, the way we are around those who lead us at work. Uh, church, or we were respectful to our parents, to our friends. And Paul wanted this church to realize that everything they did reflected on their Savior. That everything they did reflected on the one that they now profess to believe in. Do we think like that in the way that we live our lives? The way that we reflect Jesus to those around us, that we are a walking, talking, probably sometimes too much in my case, display of what Jesus should maybe look like. And so we need to take that seriously, to be obedient and ready to do whatever is good, back into verse 1. I wonder if this is our default, to try and do right by other people, to be kind in the way that we act, to be kind in the way that we speak as well. I think being shaped by the gospel looks like making those small good decisions as much as it looks like giving our life to a cause. It's about the little things as well. Start of verse 2, to slander no one. I think that's talking about gossip. Now, I don't know about you, but it's tempting, isn't it? Gossip's tempting. It's so easy. It's so simple to say, isn't that person silly? Isn't that person annoying? Isn't that person ridiculous? Isn't that thing they did so, and so frustrating or so funny that you just kind of have to share it with those? I know I'm tempted to do that with a lot of my friends sometimes, to so just share things. Is it gossip? Have we put it through our filter of being shaped by the gospel? Have we put it through our filter of saying, actually, is this building people up, be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. (laughs) I know I'm not that. I definitely know I'm not that all the time. And that's why I'm really grateful to remind myself and to remind us again that actually God's grace helps us be shaped by the gospel day by day. We shouldn't, this, this isn't a message of condemnation. It's a message of bringing us into a hope of something for the future. We can change now, but we can do it as a process and recognizing that it's all about God's grace in that process. And actually that ongoing process is our process to maturity. So why bother? Why should we do any of this? I think verse 8b, that's the second half of 8, if you're wondering, comes after these verses in the gospel section we looked at earlier, knowing the gospel and being shaped by the gospel is good for others. It says that these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Later on in our passage, in verse 14, says our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, all these things that we've been talking about, um, in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Or translated, you could say unproductive could be unfruitful, which is better for our vision, isn't it, J.G.? So let's do that. Unfruitful lives. And so actually being shaped by the gospel does have an effect on those around us. In fact, that is one of the main reasons that we want the gospel to shape us. But more on that in a minute, because Paul also gives us some red flags or some don'ts, if you will. First, we have to look at the list we read earlier in verse 3. And do have a look at your sheets now on verse 3. And recognize that although the power of sin has been defeated, the problem of sin still remains. So actually, the things on this list are things we should actively flee. It says it's who we were because that's actually not how God sees us now through Jesus if we've chosen to make Jesus our Savior. But actually, these things are still going to be temptations and things that we can fall back into all so easily. 
But actually, it's interesting. If you look at verses 1 and 2, again, I'd encourage you to look on sheets. Don't just take my word for it. It's, it's literally here. Verses 1 and 2 kind of mirror verse 3. So actually, all the things we're told to do are mirrored in the things we're told not to do. So we're foolish and now ready to do what's good. We're disobedient, now be obedient, subject to rulers and authorities. Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, now be peaceable and considerate. We lived in malice and envy, now slander no one. Being hated and hating one another, being gentle towards everyone. So I'm not saying we shouldn't avoid these things, but it is comforting to know in some ways that by pursuing good, we are in some ways avoiding the things that we're told to look out for in this passage. We can find another clear don't in in verse 9. We're told to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. And in the Titus context here, he's talking about the circumcision group that Jago spoke about in Titus 1. And what these guys were trying to do was say that to be justified, you need the gospel, but you also need these old law kind of like Jewish requirements. And one of them was circumcision. So they were saying... Gospel plus old law requirements equals justified. And I think Paul is referring to this. I think that that is what he is saying. This group was trying to put a mark of godliness on new Christians that did not line up with the truth that Jesus is all they needed. They were trying to be almost more like super Christians by doing more to be justified. But actually they just needed to know and trust in in Jesus. And so although we don't have a circumcision group in the same way, We can still look at this and be challenged and say, where do I put marks of godliness on something that for me say to, this person isn't a real Christian unless this gospel plus this. And actually, where do we do it accidentally or inadvertently or even deliberately that we put something to a deal breaker level, gospel plus whatever that thing might be, equals justified. When do we put that onto other people as well or try and call people to a standard that we're setting for ourselves that isn't actually biblical? So I wonder maybe gospel plus speaking in tongues equals justified. Gospel plus liking contemporary music equals justified. Gospel plus having a keep cup equals justified. Gospel plus having felt something in worship, had an experience of God equals justified. Gospel plus reading your Bible every single day, morning and evening and sometimes at lunchtime equals justified. Verse 7 reminds us that we're justified by grace alone. And I want to say to you, though, if you look at verse 9 and you think, I can see where I hold something that is not the gospel at a deal-breaker level about whether someone is or is not a Christian, then today's a red flag in your heart, and I want to encourage you to be challenged by that and to say to the Holy Spirit, help me change. Help me look at that in a different way. If we look at verses 10 and 11, do look on your sheets. If you'd like to, then Paul's response to these people is really strong. Because he's adamant that the gospel is all that is needed for salvation. So why do you keep banging on about the do's and don'ts, Josh? That's a good question. And I think it's because actually a life that has truly understood the gospel is a life that can't stay the same. It's one that cannot stay idle and wants to be shaped by Jesus. And these things are all put there in this letter by Paul to Titus for the for the church, because he wanted these new Christians in Crete to stand out. He wanted them to be different. For it to be obvious that they'd left an old way of life behind and entered into a new way. This is what um, William Wilberforce said in one of his journals. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And 
I think we understand the first part of the Reformation of Man is essentially that people come to know God <laughs> and be changed by it. And so he saw the importance of that. I remember speaking to this youth leader as well and saying, you know, actually, it's changed the way I approach my life. If we know the gospel and are shaped by the gospel, it should be obvious to those around us. It should cause people to stand out. If Paul was writing a letter to Clapham, I wonder what things he'd highlight. Where are we called to being, let, being shaped by the gospel cause us to stand out in our workplaces, on our streets, in our homes, with our families, whether Christian or not Christian? So we need to know the gospel. We need to be shaped by the gospel. Point three is we need to stand out for the gospel. When I was um, 12, no, 13 or 14 years old, um, they did this series at my home church called the Reach Series. And this is where they got a 14-year-old, I think a 20-something, a 40-something, and a 60-something to report back to the 600 or so people who were in church. It was terrifying. To report back each week for four weeks how they had reached out for Jesus in their world. Yeah, it was as bad as it sounds. And I remember I did all sorts of stuff. I think I had some amazing prophetic words on coffee cups for people. I remember kind of like trapping a lady on the bus to talk to her about the Holy Spirit for the 45-minute journey from Nottingham City Center to my home. I'm not saying I got it all right. In fact, those two examples I think I got a little bit wrong. But actually, it's an encouragement here to say that we should be reaching out. However badly or immaturely I did it then, actually, we can look to this passage and see that actually it's the little things. It's the little things that we're told to do and not to in verses 1 to 3 that, sh- that will cause us to stand out. That will cause us to reach people for Jesus in the small things. Now, it might be that we're called in a very obvious thing to do something big at some point. But if you're obedient in the small things and deliberate in the small things, when we are called to stand out in a way that really costs, we're ready. When we're called to stand out in a way that is going to cause people around us to say, you're a weirdo, then maybe we'll be ready for that <laughs> to stand out for the gospel. But what I want to be crystal clear on as well before we move on is that we're not doing this in our own strength. It's by God's grace in his strength. And standing out for the gospel can be a scary thing. And it's important not to feel alone in it. Right, you haven't done much for a while. Hands up. Yeah, well done, you waited. I haven't told you why yet. Hands up, who has ever received any of those emails from like mission partners, charities, missionaries, those kind of things? You get like the, the update emails. Anyone got those? Yeah, hands up now if you know. That's it. Well done. Some of you are like, no. Um, yeah, so those things, they're encouraging, aren't they? And very often they have this attached image, an image of that person or their family in their environment. And I, I don't know about you, but when I see those, I feel encouraged. I sometimes feel stirred to pray. Sometimes I feel stirred to, to give money. Sometimes I feel stirred just to be encouraged to live out my own faith. And actually, it's important that when we are standing out for the gospel, we realize we're not alone. And I, I wonder if this is why some of the stuff that happened with Nicobocca Glory happened in verse 12. Because um, we look at these people and we see, he says, I'll send Artemis and Tychicus to you. And they talked about this lawyer and this other guy called Apollos. It's a really cool name. If you have another child, I'm definitely going to consider Apollos. I think that's really awesome. Um, that's not in my notes. I literally just had a side point on my own there. Back in. There we go. Um, I think this could be Paul showing the church that they're not alone. A missionary photo for, his, for the church that he's writing to in Crete. Because um, actually this is one of the later writings. So actually some of these people had been all over the place, like s- taking letters to the Colossians. They had been mentioned in Acts. So let's focus in on one of them that is both of those things. Um, he is the small member of extended family. 
the tiny cousin, the titchy cuz. Get it? Yeah, my wife told me I shouldn't do that one. She was right. Fair enough. But actually, if we're going to ground it here in, in HTC, then we've got to recognize it's a little bit like, say, Jamie and Jago. Okay, so actually somebody who is trusted and entrusted with things in the church. Obviously, if it was Jamie, he'd be called Tally Cuz. Okay, cool. Jamie's really tall. You'll meet him later. Makes sense. We should recognize that we're not alone. <laughs> Excellent. We should actively seek to look for examples of people standing out for Jesus, both far from here and close to home. To recognize that actually we have a responsibility to our world. And we should be encouraged. Perfect. This is, um, this is what John Newton said to William Wilberforce. He said that you are not only a representative for Yorkshire, but you have the far greater honor of being a representative for the Lord in a place where many know him not. It's not just to make a name for ourselves or our company or the place we work, but actually we have a far greater honor of representing the Lord where we are. I hope that you try your best in your job. I know some of you are very good at what you do. But actually what I want to encourage you that we should be known for is being a representative of Jesus in our world. First. We're not alone. Verse 15, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. That's Paul's peace out. And then grace be with you all. That, all, that you, actually, the you in this bit, is the only you where he's not talking to Titus in the letter. He's talking to everybody. So it's a plural you. So actually, we are supposed to recognize that this letter was for us. So all the way through these last three sermons, if you've been here the last three weeks, we've got to recognize the things that Jago said, the things that Rory said, and the things that I've said this evening are supposed to be for us to hear, to listen to, but more than that, be shaped by, to be acted on. And Today's sermon starts and ends with grace because that's what it's all about. Our stories at the beginning about Wilberforce and about how the gospel is changing lives here in Holy Trinity Clapham should encourage us that this is not just for baby Christians. This is not just the first thing, but it is the thing that transforms us all the way through our lives. That the gospel has depth and breadth and transformative power for the individual and for our world. We need to discover the truth of God's word and act on it. Look to live out our response to the gospel, to stand out in a world that is so broken, to stand out in Clapham, to stand out in our workplaces, to stand out with our friends. And that's tough, but we're not told to do it alone. We've got people sitting next to you here, there's people all around the world who believe this stuff. But we're also told to stand in God's strength and in our own. I'm going to invite the band to come up and I'm going to invite you guys to stand. I've encouraged us this evening to know the gospel, to be shaped by the gospel, and to stand out for the gospel. And I do believe that if we do this, that our world can be transformed. You know, walking here, there were just so many people on the common, so many people on my way, and it's never more obvious than at this time of year that there is a whole world of people out there who maybe don't know Jesus. And that should challenge us 
that should cause us to stand up. The gospel changes us so that we can change our world. We need to know it, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. So we're just going to respond, especially to the first two points here. Maybe as we kind of bow our heads, close our eyes, I'm just going to take us through a few things that I think we should respond to individually here in prayer. And then we're going to sing a, a song. And while we're singing, I want to encourage you to do some business with God. I know some of you are starting that earlier. Some of you are already starting the business that you're going to continue to do now because the Holy Spirit was working in you, and that's amazing. But actually, I want to encourage you that if you are challenged that you actually don't know the gospel, tell Jesus that today. We'd love to pray with you. If you want someone to pray with you about that, when come on to one of the sides and we can pray with you. But for, for everyone else, I want to encourage you that actually the knowing the gospel going from a head thing to a heart thing is where I think a few of us need to respond tonight. To say that I don't want to just know that it's as an intellectual thing. I want to know this in the way that I live every part of my life. And for some of us, we were really challenged by the verse 9 stuff about what do we add to the gospel? What do we put at a deal breaker level of what it means to be a Christian? Maybe you need to bring those things in your heart to God now. So as we worship, I want to encourage you especially to respond to those first two points. To know the gospel and to be shaped by the gospel.